welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 46, Ether 12 through 15. By faith, all things are fulfilled. We have a special guest today, all the way from Nauvoo, Illinois, in person, Robert Wright. In these chapters, Moroni is inspired to add a few more things about our day. Bob Wright is one of the best experts on Noah and the Flood. He and his team have done a wonderful job in creating a flood museum which is located in Nauvoo, Illinois. It's dedicated to presenting the truth of the Bible account. The museum includes the flood experience, where visitors visit Noah's world, board the ark, experience the flood, see the world after the flood, and learn about light and rainbows. Welcome, Robert Wright. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our uh, Come Follow Me uh, supplemental information for the Book of Mormon Evidence uh, podcast. We are excited about uh, this this podcast. I am, I've been uh, waiting to have this, and uh, we actually had uh, a, a good friend of mine from Nauvoo, Illinois, actually come to join us. And uh, this is Robert Wright, and we're grateful to have you uh, with us here today. Glad to be here. <laughs> now, uh, the reason why I had him come is because um, we have uh, some interesting things in the Book of Mormon that deal with uh, a particular area of history that is that is talked about in the in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and a prophet that was uh, that was that was one of the, the the only survivors of Adam's posterity, and that is of course Noah. Noah, and uh, I and and this 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 uh, young man here beside me is actually uh, probably one of the foremost experts about Noah because he actually has put together. A, an amazing, uh, uh, it's actually in a museum, it's called the, mm-hmm. the Flood Museum, and it's in Nauvoo, Illinois. Right. Uh, it's taken him uh, several years to, to conceptualize and put it together and so forth, but they actually came together pretty, pretty quickly. I'd like right. to yeah. tell us a little bit about the museum and kind of how you got involved with this. Well, uh, I began with writing a book. Um, I felt that the time was right to, um, to write a book that address the covenant that, that God made with his people when he provided the token of the bow, and felt that it was an important time in history to reclaim the rainbow. And so that's where the work really began. And about five, six years worth of research, and I finally um, was ready to, to publish the book. And so we put out the book, The Token of the Bow, and actually thought that, uh, okay, now I'm done. Uh, you probably but, ought to explain a little bit about the token of the bow. Well, in Genesis, um, he the, the God makes the the statement that He will provide this um, this token of the bow um, as a sign of the covenant. So the token of the rainbow that He would provide this as a as a sign of the covenant that was made for perpetual generations. He says so. It isn't just for Noah; it's for everyone. And He says it's to all creatures. So this is a covenant that God made not just with Noah. Uh-huh. And not just with Noah and his sons, but with the entire earth and all the posterity. So it obviously has significance for us, but we often don't understand what it means. And in fact, we have allowed in a single generation, which was the initial premise for the book, to, to watch right before our eyes this token, this, this great token of a covenant. Because anytime a covenant is made, you will hear about a token being offered. And it's different than a symbol. Because a symbol is something that signifies something Represents else. Represents it. Right. A yeah. token, it involves an action. It is created anew each time the token is offered. Kind of like the sacrament. Like the sacrament. So with the rainbow, it's unique because it's not simply a symbol, but it is a, it, every time a rainbow appears in the sky, it is a new event. And in particular, when you look at the science, and we talk about this in the museum, when you look at the science of how rainbows are created and how light behaves, a, a rainbow is also a unique individual event because where I stand determines the rainbow I see. You may be standing right next to me, but the, because of the behavior of light, the rainbow you see will be different than the rainbow I see. While it may be subtle, it still is an indication of, this, of, of Heavenly Father's desire to have an individual relationship with each of us, even if the covenant itself is a broad, perpetual thing for all generations and applies to everyone. It doesn't mean it's any less significant for us individually. So that was the initial impetus for writing the book. When we finished the book, was actually somewhat surprised to to then feel inspiration that we needed to create a museum, a place people could come and learn about not just the rainbow, 
but the flood itself, and to recognize for the first time, uh, particularly among Latter-day Saints, but among Christians in general, that they could come to some place and learn that science and faith are not at odds with each other. They're fully we, compatible. They are fully compatible. In fact, they are they are reinforcing of one another. Um, if we look at honest science, it will always testify of God and of Christ and His creation. It's only when we allow the anti-God scientific theories to work their way in that there becomes confusion. When I, in the museum, I talk about the idea that so many of the theories of the world that are being taught in universities and in schools all over the country um, are science that then Christians come in after the fact and try to shove God into the cracks in these theories of men. <laughs> so they, they say, oh, you yeah. don't know how that, like with the Big Bang, we don't know how that works. Okay, that's where God fits. Instead of beginning with the precept that what the scriptures tell us about creation and about God and about man and about the flood actually happened, and if we are honest about our evaluation of the evidence, and not even, I would be content if scientists were just simply willing to allow God to be one of their options yeah. as they evaluate the evidence. Yes. But unfortunately, what most do is exclude God from the equation, and they'll couch it in terms of saying, well, we don't allow supernatural, any supernatural influences. That was how... Darwin couched it because his wife was yeah. very religious, so he didn't want to, in, in, in his books, he didn't want to write about, I don't believe in God, so what he said was, I don't believe in supernatural. His private letters tell a different story. He was anti-God. Which I got to say, it's really kind of funny because you have Steve Hawking, who is kind of like the guru of all of science, basically in his own book, he comes out and directly says that the universe and everything in it came from nothing. Right. <laughs> right, and you know, and and that that is uh, a lot of people are not familiar with and, and don't really mm -hmm. know that we have some of the, the the world's foremost scientists literally saying things that that require supernatural. Exactly. Well, and in fact, in the, the how, Big how Bang is an example. Come from nothing. Right, and with the Big Bang, Big Bang is an example. The Big Bang, in order for it, that theory to work, it requires dark matter and dark energy. These are both substances and forces that can't be, by their own definition, can't be, yeah, they're unobservable. They can't be measured. They, we've never, in all the, the, the experiments that they've tried to do, have never been able to validate that those substances exist. And yet, they are necessary for this grand theory of the Big Bang to work. So what we are being asked, as these in, in mainstream <laughs> science, what we are being asked is to accept things we can't see, feel, hear, touch, mm -hmm. or observe in any direct way, Rather than believing in God, because God, we can't see, feel, touch, or hear. So it's simply substituting one religion for another. Yes. Yes. Well, let's get into some of the interesting things. So, so throughout the, the history, and in fact, almost in every culture, uh, in fact, you go into this in, in the museum. If you ever get a chance to get, go out there to, to Nauvoo, you've got to go to the Flood Museum. Um, when I take our tours there, we always yep. we make sure we go through the yep. Flood Museum because because it's for the first time all these places all these things in one place. Right. But the flood is not just in the Old Testament. Right. Exactly. Tell, well, where, where else is the flood mentioned? If you were to look at the story of the flood, it would it would a logical person would assume that an event of that magnitude that in fact affected the um, the foundation Everybody. of all humanity after the flood because it all comes down to Noah, his three sons, and their and their wives and their families. That's that would then be the this new creation that we talk about would come out of that event. That as their descendants go out into the world, they would have continued to tell this story. Of course, they're going to tell this amazing story, and so probably for a period of time because they could all talk to Grandpa Noah, you know, or to somebody who knew <laughs> Noah, and yeah. so they kind of maybe keep the story kind of straight. And they would have had his written records. We know that there that Noah kept records as all prophets do they are all told to write it to record um, to record it but we don't have the book of Noah anymore and so then when you have the confounding of the languages at Babel you would also have the confounding of the stories and so what we show in the museum is the is the artifacts that represent the flood stories continued um, place in these cultures history 
throughout time, and it's kind of like the game of telephone. You tell the story to somebody else, they tell it to somebody else, they tell it to somebody else, and before you know it, the story's unrecognizable. But what's amazing there, in all these still cultures, there's still, all it's, it's yeah. amazing how often eight people are involved in these stories, yeah. um, how often a dove factors into the story, how often um, they are, the, the world is flooded because of the unrighteousness of, mm-hmm. of men. Of the people. But even more is now when we look at some of the earliest records, you get a chance to see how there's been a, an actual conscious effort to steer people away from it. But the most, the most well-known, commonly referred to story of the, of the flood is the Epic of Gilgamesh um, because it has so many similarities mm-hmm. and it's so old. Where does, um, it, where does it come from? But it comes from Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And so you're, that area where the Sumerians, Mesopotamians all were is the area where Noah would have landed. And so we would we'd talk about this new culture arising there. But this is post-Tower, so new language, a little bit of confusion. And so there was the story that because Moses' account comes after that in time, that Moses simply drew on that. If what Moses was recording was a firsthand, event, or a firsthand account of an event, which what we know from the book of Moses was the case, yeah. recording what he was actually shown, mm-hmm. then what it was was a 2,000-year-old record written by, the man, by a man who saw it after it, was, after it occurred because he was shown it by the Lord. So what we see when we look at these early tablets, there are actually tablets that predate the Epic of Gilgamesh, and if the mainstream science and archaeologists' point of view was, was accurate, then those stories should be less and less like the biblical account because they predate it. But what we actually see is that the further back you go, the more like the biblical account they get. The more it validates it. Yes. So wow. what we're seeing is that there was a common element that predates all of these stories, a, 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 an event that occurred that all these stories then move out from. Mm-hmm. And we see it. They talk about the cradle of civilization. We see civilization emanating from this place. The, the, and so the, the stories as well. Exactly, so yes. So, mm-hmm. what, so what other ancient uh, writings are there that... that, that, that well, we have the Epic of Gilgamesh. We actually have there um, the Native American stories. We have sand paintings in the museum that represent the Native American cultures, mm-hmm. talking about oh, wow. that after the, this great flood event, that the current world, it, it, it comes into existence out of a great flood. Yeah. Um, we have uh, some, some pieces from, the, from Angkor Wat that, uh, that show the, the churning of the great oceans. And there they, they believe that the continents arose as the world was covered with water, the continents broke apart, and the mountains then rose up out of the water, which, yeah. again, is what the Bible that, that says. That sounds like another one, one of the codexes even from Central America. They, you know, yeah, and I, we have, yeah, we have the Dresden Codex there. Yeah. And that's an amazing document because these were the oldest written documents from the Americas. Mm-hmm. And for years could not be read. It was kind of an Egyptian hieroglyphic thing. You needed a Rosetta Stone. And so finally, when they were able to begin to, to read them, even though the Spanish destroyed many of them, thinking they were pagan documents, we find that they are great scientific documents. And so they include things about um, solar observation and lunar observation and, and time to plant crops and, and events and things like that. So I, always, I jokingly say that it's, it's the Mayan version of the Farmer's Almanac. You know, it just have everything in there. Yeah. And yet they also include the recollection of this great flood. Yeah, and, and, but, well, and also, I mean, even like the, the, uh, like the Pope Paul Vu, for example. Right, uh-huh. It says, in, in the beginning, all there was was the peaceful sea. Right. Yes. Yeah, so for creation, in particular, out of this, yes, from creation standpoint, exactly. So, so typically, um, every every one of these ancient uh, mm-hmm. histories, if you will, ancient stories, um, do include usually they include the creation account. And they almost always include the Noah account as well, the, the right. flood account. Yeah, and so the companion to the um, the Mesopotamian flood stories then is the Enuma Elish, which is the creation account. And again, it talks about this great canopy, a firmament of water above and a firmament below um, in the yeah. Enuma Elish. And the Egyptian stories do the same. Okay, but you got, you got to tell us about the Chinese characters. I love okay. that part of the museum. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, it's interesting because in China, um, they, of course, have a character uh, based language or an image based language. So rather than using alpha characters, alphabet characters, they use characters that represent specific words. And so the character for um, boat is made up of three other characters. 
Okay. It's made up of the character. This is the word boat. In, boat. In when you, when they draw, when they write out this term. character for boat, yeah. it's made up of three others, and the th those three characters are the character for vessel, the character for eight, oh. and the character for people. So <laughs> embedded right in the Chinese language is this idea that a boat is a vessel that carries eight people, just like Noah's account. <laughs> it goes even further though, because this this is an aside. Um, after we opened the museum, a gentleman came through who had actually served his mission in China. He said, I got another one for you. He said, it's amazing. He said, the, the Chinese character for language is made up of two characters, the character for tower and the character for mouth or people. <laughs> so it's, it, these, these are traditions that belong to all of us. That's why we say in our common ground exhibit, which is what we call it, that the flood is everybody's story. It belongs to all of us. And every culture has these echoes where they remember this great event that happened um, to, to all of us. Wow. Well, we talked about some of the other ancient histories and so forth, but mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about one specifically yes. in, that, that we revere, as an, and that is, again, the, uh, the Book of Mormon here. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we are using the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon as our reference material to some extent mm -hmm. here. Um, but, but in the Book of Mormon, um, you know, you know, Joseph Smith said this is the, the most correct of all books, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a man could be could become closer to God by reading its precepts than any other book. Mm -hmm. If the flood story is so important, then uh, does it show up in the Book of Mormon? And it does in in multiple places. In fact, it it occurs in every book of Scripture that that Latter Day Saints revere. Every one of them. <laughs> I mean, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants. Read Doctrine and Covenants one thirty eight. It's yep. in the Pearl of Great Price. No better account than Moses' yes, account. Yes. Um, it's in the Bible, of course, in Genesis five and six, and and then of course in the Book of Mormon. But in Ether thirteen, it's really really amazing because okay. we got we got to go there in okay, Ether so thirteen. Let's, let's pull that up. Um, Moroni is referring to the fact that the people have disregarded all of the things that, that Ether taught them, all these important things. And then he goes down, and if you, were to, if you take those scriptures that follow, so two through like eight or nine, and you use that as an opportunity to make a list, uh -huh. and you start breaking it down, the things that were taught them by Ether that they then chose to disregard include the creation of men. Mm-hmm. The creation, the 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 flood, and in particular, that when the flood waters retreated off the land, that a covenant then this became a covenant land, a choice land. He says. Yep. He goes on to say that one that the other things that that were disregarded from that Ether had had tried to teach them was the return of of Christ, and the establishment of a new Jerusalem on this continent, as well as the restoration of Jerusalem itself. The original Jerusalem and the, the two, gathering the two of the, the two the two Jerusalems and the 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 uh, return of the twelve tribes, the restoration of of the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. So he puts Ether uses this opportunity to put the flood right alongside the significance of the creation, <laughs> the return of Christ, yes, the establishment of um, Zion here and the restoration of Jerusalem and the gathering of the 12 tribes. And he says that that, that, would be a, that, he, that that would be the time when we would have a new creation, a new world. So this is obviously significant for Moroni to think this was one of the most important <laughs> things that, he, that Ether taught, and the people have disregarded it. Well, that, that, that's a good point. Basically, to go back for just a second now, so uh, we're in, in Ether, we're in chapter 13, um, just as a, as a as a reminder, mm -hmm. basically, where did ether come from? We have you know the, the plates and so forth that were discovered. They were then translated by the gift and power of the, the, the right. Holy, mm -hmm. Holy Ghost, but also with using the Urim and Thummim, which is right. an interesting and important part. And so you have basically uh, Mormon here is making this abridgment of the ether plates. So this is kind of gives you context as far as where this is all coming from. So this right. is something that Mormon and I want to I want to point out something very important about Mormon here. Is that this is um, in, in Mormon, uh, as he's doing this process, I just want to remind everybody that as he's doing this process here from Mormon chapter 8, now this is the book of Mormon in the book of Mormon, okay, and chapter 8 verse 35 he says, Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet ye are not, but behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. Mm -hmm. So Mormon was shown us, 
Right. In our day, which is why he's writing this. So as he's doing this abridgment from the Jaredite records in Ether, um, he has now in mind what we're going to need for us in our day. Exactly. Okay, exactly. so he puts this in here. Let, let me just read this, uh, this, this right here. So this is from uh, Ether chapter 13. I'll just start with uh, verse 1. It says, Now, and now I, Mor- Moroni, proceed to finish my record concerning the destruction of the people whom I've been writing. For behold, they rejected all the words of Ether, and he truly told them of all things from the beginning of man. Exactly. So creation and itself. This is, this, is a, this is a pattern that has been used numerous times mm-hmm. um, in, th- in teaching the gospel. They start from the beginning, the right. creation, the fall, exactly. the at- and, and so forth, and then they move through the atonement and so mm-hmm. forth, right? And so, and so they said, you know, this is something that the, that the Jaredites did. And, and this is the part that I think is really important, that after the waters had receded from off the face of this land, mm-hmm. What waters are we talking about here? Yeah, it's here. It's North America. Okay, but what are the waters that he's talking about? The here? flood waters. Yeah. Okay. And the and flood water, that's the only time that this would have been this continent as it exists would have been covered with water. And so now those waters retreat um, as right. the flood waters recede. And so again to get to go back, so basically if you have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, they're here in the heartland of America. Right. Then Noah builds his ark here. Somewhere nearby. Uh, somewhere in the his in, grandfather in was there with yeah. Adam to receive his blessing. Right. So you know he was he was nearby. And that was three years before Adam died, which was he was nine hundred and twenty seven years old and he met them right. at them at this place called Adam on the Almond. And we know right. exactly where that is because of revelations in section exactly. sixteen and eighty four. And if you look at where that is, if you look at this this primordial continent, so prior to the flood, it's in an area that that uh, that uh, geologists would call uh, Laurentia uh, on this on this massive continent. And Laurentia happens to be in the middle of this major continent, along the equator, where now in Illinois and Missouri we find some of the largest coal forests on the planet. Mm-hmm. So if you need a, so- a source for lumber for building great boats, or you need to have <laughs> you've got it. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you have all all the different core, mm-hmm. the coal mining and so forth in the Appalachian Mountains and so forth yeah. in that whole region. Yeah, but these forests, and it's yeah, interesting because yeah. you look at the forests in southern Illinois, um, they are again the largest coal forests. 120 miles they've excavated um, through through these tunnels so far, and they are amazing trees, six foot in diameter, that grow hundreds of feet tall and may, and retain that that six foot mm-hmm. diameter to their height. And the scientists will tell you that the only thing they know for sure is that this forest was destroyed when a when a flood came, and they think it was a a, a river nearby river a overflowing local flood of some sort. Exactly. But the point is that over and over we see this story about it being floodwaters that destroyed this and floodwaters that destroyed that, and and an unwillingness to connect all these as a as a common event. But here's this forest that is destroyed when a flood comes, mm-hmm. right in the area where where they were living. Exactly. So, so, but this is the interesting thing. So, when it says the flood, when it says the waters receded from off the face of this land, the land that they are on now is America. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the flood waters receded from off the face of this land, which means that this entire land was apparently covered with water. Exactly. And it had to be covered with water. And, it, and it, now, now I have to say this. This and this is this is a little bit of a sad thing for me to say this. Okay, but. Even within the church, there are people who are trying to undermine and dismiss Noah's flood as not being a real event, that there's no evidence for it, there's no geological evidence for it, um, that they were basically, in fact, there was an article that was uh, published by a guy by the name of Stephen Smoot from, uh, from Book of Mormon Central. And in his article, he basically had this, and you can look it up, it's called uh, Five Answers to Difficult Questions About Noah's Flood. In the article, he specifically comes out and says that, uh, you know, well, we don't know if it was really a, a worldwide flood. It may have been a, and, and in fact, in the beginning of it, he actually calls the Noah, it was the Noah's flood myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. The, the, yeah. It, it's a story, basically, and that was a myth. He, he, he says, I'm not trying to downplay it or whatever, but he uses the, the term Noah's flood myth. Mm-hmm. And then he says, well, there's no need for the earth to be baptized because it's not of human or whatever. And then, which which, val- which uh, goes directly against what John Taylor said, who was right. prophet but, of the church. But, but he was okay. just an old prophet, so yeah. <laughs> 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 no, but, no, but basically so. Then he also says that the Noah's flood, um, um, you know, that, that, that it, it probably was just a metaphor. Uh, it might have been a local event, but but there's no evidence for it being a worldwide event. But yet here we have in the Book of Mormon that after Adam's posterity is removed from mm-hmm. America, basically by Noah's flood. So the ark was built here in America, essentially. Um, then they end up in the mountains of Ararat over in Turkey, 
with Noah and his family and everything starts over. And then here we have in the Book of Mormon, it says, when the floodwaters, basically when the waters receded from off the face of this land, it became again a choice land. It had been polluted by the, by the, the, the posterity of Adam who refused to obey the covenant, basically, that was made there. It says that then it began again to be a chosen land of the Lord, wherefore the Lord would have all men should serve him who dwell upon the face thereof. Mm-hmm. And that is so true. Every, every civilization that's ever had, has had the, the privilege of being located on this promised land, um, ultimately, if they don't remain true to the gospel, true to the principles, and true to the covenant that God made on this land, they get the broom treatment, as uh, my friend uh, Doug Brindley likes to call it. <laughs> they, they get swept off the land. Mm-hmm. So just really, just as a brief, you know, so you have Adam and his posterity, they get they forget about the covenant. They get swept off the land. The Jaredites are basically the next ones up, and uh, they forget about this covenant, and they they forget about God, and they sweep themselves basically off the land. Mm-hmm. They have the Nephites coming up next. Uh, the next people that come over were some of the remnant of the house of Israel that came over in ships and started a new nation called the United States of America. Um, George Washington invokes a covenant on this nation, mm-hmm. and... So as a nation, we're the next in line to uh, either understand this covenant or suffer the consequences of not living this covenant. Mm -hmm. And Noah's flood is an amazing part of this this whole thing. And part of that covenant, too, and the ability for people to continue to, to live in righteousness is how much do they revere the words of the prophets and the teachings of Christ, which can only be retained. The, the amazing thing about people who, I mean, we know that um, Nephi felt um, through the inspiration of the Lord that it was so significant for him to go back and get the record. And so he goes back and he gets the, the plates from Laban. What, what did that record contain? He tells five, us five, book, five books of Moses is yes. a major part of it, along with writings of the other prophets. We have Zenith and Zenos and others. And but, what was in but the, five the books only, of Moses? It, and it was this story <laughs> of the creation and of the flood. It is the Pentateuch. It is the first five books that we read now. And so it was, it was important enough for him to go back and get it because what God tells us over and over is you need this touchstone. You need this to go back to so that no matter what anybody begins to tell you, you have a place to go back and say, no, not what they say I said. What did I say? Mm-hmm. What, what did happen? So those who, whether it's you know anybody who tries to say, or tries to convince anyone that this is a, that that elements of this are a myth or anything else. There's two two concerns. One is the Bible and the Book of Mormon and all of these records. They present themselves as being a, a historical record. Mm-hmm. They either are or they aren't. They can't sometimes be, sometimes be not, mm-hmm. or they lose all their power. And the second thing is when others try to convince you something else, like saying that it's a flood myth or anything else. I simply ask, why do you want me to believe that? Yeah. It's important for each of us when somebody's trying to tell us something that seems at odds with That's the gospel. A That's a great why question. do you want me to believe that? So those who want us to not believe the flood, why do they not? Why do they want us to not believe the flood happened? When they don't want us, to, when we talk about creation and that it happened exactly the way God said, and they try to present these other scientific theories, whether it's evolution or anything else, why do you want me to believe that? And mm-hmm. inevitably, when you get to the core of it. The reason that it's important for Satan to use these other methods to distract us is so that we will turn our back on the gospel. We will turn our back on the Creator and on Christ. Well, and, 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 and this is just Christ. an observation from my point, but I think we, we actually talked about this before the uh, before mm-hmm. this uh, this episode, and that is that there seems to be um, you know groups within the church, even apologetic groups within the church. And it's kind of interesting because they have a tendency to to all agree on several of these points. Like, for example, um, that creation really didn't happen like the scriptures say three times in the scriptures and also in our endowment ceremony. That basically that's kind of a metaphor and it's not really literal. Um, that Adam and Eve were not really the first man and woman on the earth like the scriptures and the prophets have mm-hmm. always upheld. That uh, that Noah's flood wasn't an actual real event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Book of Mormon happened down in Central America. Um, and and anyway, all of these different things mm-hmm. and, and they seem to coexist. Yeah, you know, the, the evolution, right. the age of the Earth is you know billions of years right. old, and so forth, yep. and those kind of things. When you ask the question, "Why do you want me to believe this?" Exactly. 
I look at that and say, well, maybe one of the reasons is because, because these, these groups, these apologetics groups, want us to believe in and have one foot in the theories of man, the philosophies of man, mm-hmm. and one foot in the scriptures, and somehow try to reconcile those mm-hmm. by throwing the scriptures and the prophets under the bus. Yeah, and, <laughs> okay. right, and and then, and then holding up the science part of it as being kind of the foremost expert, and eventually, yes, eventually, mm-hmm. the church will conform to the truths of science. And I think that's and really when that you look is at not where we're from, right? Folks. But that's really at the heart of it. That's for not most, it. I think there are a lot of people who are confused about whether the flood was a local event or or, or a global event, and are confused about how evolution fits into the, or the theory of evolution, how it fits into this whole creation story, Mm -hmm. that they are legitimately confused and trying to reconcile. There are those who, um, for their own professional well-being, um, Mm -hmm. they they feel a need to... Because they don't want to be hypocrites, so rather than being a hypocrite, it's easier, can can I come up with a way to reconcile this? Yeah. And so a lot of this effort has been about how do we reconcile these theories of men, the Science philosophies of men, religion. with with religion, instead of going back and saying, you know what, God is the ultimate authority, the ultimate scientist, the <laughs> ultimate resource and source to go to for answers. And if we are confused, maybe it's time to go back to the source and 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 then and look to him for the answer and then wait. Yeah. Wait wait until we have an answer instead of just accepting what might seem the most expeditious thing because of our the tenure that we want to have as a as a teacher or the recognition we want to have from from the world in the papers that we write and things that like that from and the funding that comes with it organizations right. that fund these things right. who, who are basically so, run by godless atheists and as a general so what can initially start as just I want to figure out a way to reconcile this yeah. can then ultimately lead to a place where what we have what without even knowing that it's happened they deny the creator they deny um, the the power of of the of the salvation and the restoration that only comes through Jesus Christ. If evolution, as it's presented by meaning Darwin macro, and other macro well, evolution. see, and I refuse to use macro micro because I say yeah. that the 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 fact is evolution. The author of that, I mean, there, we can go someplace and find out what that word's supposed to mean because we can go to the author of it. Mm-hmm. And so, when you look at what Darwin proposed. Right. It was an anti-God theory. And so if you try to reconcile something that its very foundation is anti-God with God. Not going to work out so It's not going to work very well. But you can still do it. I mean, there's ways to do it. But the only way you can really do it is by not questioning the the anti-stuff and questioning God's accuracy in reporting these things that happen and say, well, God, you know, and then try to find some wiggle room, like you said, trying to find a crack. Try to, try, try to put God in the cracks. The, and the, yeah. we get confused between the evidence yeah. and the conclusions. Um, in the museum, we teach this principle that, um, that conclusions are simply, it's simply a math equation. Assumptions plus evidence equals conclusions. Evidence is just truth. So when we talk about species changing or we talk about rocks being laid down in layers in the flood mm-hmm. and animals being entrapped in them by this catastrophic event, mm-hmm. that's evidence. We know that happened. Right. The assumptions, though, that go along with it are everything. Yeah. And if we assume that the uniformitarian ideas of billions of years to create sediment deposits like that, in spite of what Mount St. Helens and others have, show, have shown us, those other events... Yeah. Um, have shown us um, if we if we uh, if we allow those assumptions to drive the the discussion, then the conclusions we come to are very different than if we begin with an assumption that says God knows. Yeah, you know, what's interesting if you go online, um, yeah, and, and this actually harkens back to the the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, Lehi's dream. Mm-hmm. You have basically the people who have uh, caught hold of the rod of iron. They have made it to the mm-hmm. tree. They partaken of the fruit. And then some of them are kind of embarrassed because of what? Right. Because there's Years there's, this, there's this huge, yeah. great and spacious building with, with millions of numberless mm-hmm. people, and they're all pointing and laughing and mocking, but yet that building has no foundation. It is literally standing, as it were, in the air. Right, like and these theories. So, uh, so yeah. basically, 
here, but but these people in the building they they feel pretty secure. They they're pretty sure that that building's real, mm-hmm. and then and they and they can count on that building. Greatest they know it's going to be there, <laughs> and they're mocking the people who actually have their feet literally on the ground right. and have partaken of the fruit. And I can tell you that even within the church, and and even in some of the uh, the universities that the church owns. Um, there, are, there are kids who, if, if challenging their professors in regard to things like evolution, sure. they are made to feel ashamed mm-hmm. of their belief. Right, and I, so it's which fair is enough. Almost in a, exactly a you know, it's it's a fulfillment of Lehi's right. dream. So it's fair enough in any of these type of discussions to sit down with the people who are going to be teaching our children, or that we're going to be engaging into any kind of dialogue with, and say, first, let's sit down and see: Do we have common ground on the assumptions? Mm-hmm. Do we believe that God is the creator? Do we believe that, that the scriptures are, are the first, true? Yeah. That Adam and Eve are the first the first two? That the flood actually happened? That the events recorded in the Book of Mormon are historic documents? Because it, I'll tell you, if we can't agree to that, then there's no point in having any additional discussions. Because we don't agree on the most important foundational things. We can then disagree on how to apply those to the evidence Absolutely. and what the conclusions yeah. we might reach. That's fair enough, but if we disagree on the foundational um, elements of the discussion, yeah. those those foundational assumptions, the ones that really matter, the the ones that are truly gospel and not just tradition or just ideas or aren't conclusions hiding as assumptions, if we can agree on those, and they need to go back to Christ and go back to the creation and go back to the 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 reliability and the accuracy. Of the scriptures, if we can go back to that, and, and the prophets, then because they're, they're, as, far, as far as I know, I haven't heard any prophet ever who, in, in, in this dispensation or any other dispensation, who have basically come out in favor of that God didn't really create the world. That oh, and in fact, every one of them is the first man and woman. Go look that, at the Bible that, dictionary. That, that we even. all evolved from lower life. Right. Forms. In spite of what's not being anyone taught, anyone has ever said that they right. agree with those those principles, those ideas yeah. and ordinances. Even though some of them said, "Well, you know, we, we may not know exactly how it happened." Yeah. But they've never come out in support of any of those yeah. ideas. Well, let's get, we need to get back to the sure. uh, to the to the uh, the Book of Mormon here because it does talk about the um, about Noah's flood and a couple other. Yeah, places. it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of those places I'd, I'd like to. Uh, you, yeah, you in fact, was, when, you, when you're looking at then, so we look at uh, at Ether 13, and then yeah. we begin, if we go back to Alma 10:22 and 3 Nephi 22:9, those are both really interesting because they give us some great context in in when in this the statements that were even made in Ether 13:2. Because it's fair enough to ask when we're talking about the flood, why does it even matter? Yeah. Yeah. So what does it even matter if we believe what, in the flood so, that happened? So, so what if it's, it's a something that happened, if it's a local limit? Right, so it happened 4,000 years ago. What does it even matter to us? But if we look at Alma 10.22, 3 Nephi 22.9, we begin to, begin to understand what it's revealing to us. So if you look, and, I mean, Alma 10.22 in particular, there what he's talking about is these are a group of people who were so unrighteous that they were ready to be destroyed, but they were saved from that destruction by the prayers of the righteous. And so he uses Noah as an example. He said, if it wasn't for the prayers of the righteous, you would have been destroyed just as the people of Noah's day. Yeah, so Let's go ahead and read that real sure, quick. So, yep. so this is uh, so Alma chapter 10, uh, verse 22. This is on page 220 in the annotated edition mm-hmm. of the Book of Mormon. It says, Yea, I say unto you that if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, that ye would even now be visited with utter destruction, Yet it would not be by flood as it as were the people in the days of Noah, but it would be by famine and by pestilence and by sword. So here we have an Alma, you know, and then again, mm-hmm. this is being compiled now right. by Mormon, who has seen our day, and he's putting this in there, and he's basically saying that you know, from their history, that uh, that they he's verifying that the flood was a real deal. Verifying that the flood did, that that the flood actually happened, and giving us a context to say that it happened as a judgment. Yes. So saying you that you you were so because unrighteous, it wasn't for the prayers of the righteous, you would have been destroyed, and it would have been it would have been right because you were that you were that bad. But then if you look at Third Nephi twenty two nine, okay, that, then I think this is fantastic. This is this, this yeah. is really this. Yeah. this is actually and it's, let's, so let's now go we over have to, uh, Third Nephi chapter twenty two verse right. So nine. now we have Nephi see right here, I think, quoting Isaiah, right. quoting the Lord. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so say that one more time. This so, is. so yeah. So third Nephi twenty two. You have Nephi quoting Isaiah, who's quoting the Lord. 
Yes. Okay? So yeah. this is how important this was. This has gone through multiple <laughs> generations yeah. here to get to us. But there, what Isaiah is talking this is about. Chapter, this is 35, chapter 22. We're going right. to be looking at verse 9 yep. on and, the Annotated Book of Mormon. It's on page 419. Okay. So leading into this, um, what Isaiah is talking about is he's quoting the Lord and saying that um, I'm, I'm, he, the Lord is, ex, is, is explaining to, to Israel how compassionate he's been. <laughs> you know, he's saying, you know, I, I could have done much worse. I mean, it, 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 things could have been much harder on you. But um, then he talks, go ahead and read it. Yeah, so this is verse 9. It says, For this, the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee. Right. Now he's saying, he's using the, the flood of Noah to demonstrate his mercy. Mm-hmm. So, here, it back says, it out. It says over the earth. Oh, yeah, so he's, it, it's a real event. It's a real here. event, and the context the is yeah. that this real event happened, and I'm going to tell. I'm, I'm and and I'm telling you that it was an act of mercy. So back in Alma, he's saying I was ready to bring judgment, just like I did with Noah, and here he's or just yeah, just like I did with Noah, and here he's saying to Israel, I am so compassionate with you. <laughs> I could, you know, and and so what we get yeah. with this story of Noah, the reason it's so important that we see this story in in the scriptures and that we understand it, is that it begins to reveal a character and a nature of God that's important for us. That that He is both a God of justice mm-hmm. and a God of mercy. mercy. And in addition, what we see is that. Just like he did in in um, in Ether thirteen, he talks about he puts the the flood alongside creation because it was a second creation. Yeah, and and now we get a ch- and and then he goes on to talk about the return of the Savior, and the establishment of the New Jerusalem and the restoration of Jerusalem. So another creation because he talks about a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. So he is also then the creator. So through this story, we learn so much about who he is. Yeah. He's the great judge, but he's also the redeemer, and he's also the creator. Yeah. That's we need we we can't just allow this story to to pass away, and the fact that he has given us evidence everywhere we look. I love to ask people. I say, you know, the scriptures tell us that everything testifies of Christ. How does this? How do how do these rocks? Testify. We pass by when you drive down the freeway. <laughs> you can't go past a road cut without seeing the layers and layers. How do these rocks? If you go to the museum and you see this great tyrannosaur and and, and these bones, how does that testify of Christ? All of those things are testifying to us of the reality of this great event, which was an example of God's judgment, His role as judge, His role as creator, and 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 how merciful He is to us, His role as redeemer. So when you when you experience those things. You, we can remember that's who he is. It all testifies yeah. of him. And it's important that we not just let the world dilute that into something else. And we just be another animal crawling around on the face of this. this I totally planet. agree. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I, to kind of finish up here. We're going to wrap this up a little bit. But uh, but I want to go back to um, this, this, this scripture I mentioned at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Which was uh, this is from Mormon chapter eight, and this is verse uh, thirty-five when he, when he, when Mormon testifies that Christ showed him our day, and he knows of our doing. Well, right after that, in verse 36, 37, and thirty-eight, there's some very interesting things. He basically says, uh, he says, I know that you walk in the pride of your hearts. You're lifted up and, and with fine apparel, and there's envies and strife and malice and all these kind of things. He says, um, and and in your churches, yea, every even every one has become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. You love your money and your substance and your fine apparel and so forth and so on. But verse 38, this one here, I just know mm-hmm. this, this for you, those of you who are uh, who are hearing this this podcast and so forth, um, I want you to think of who this is talking about. Because I'm not going to tell you who it is. I, don't, I, I have some ideas. I have some thoughts about it. But, uh, but this is what it says. It says, Oh, ye pollutions, ye hypocrites. Now, that's a pretty... Mm-hmm. I mean, those are pretty derogatory terms. <laughs> okay, he says, "Oh, ye pollutions, ye hypocrites, ye teachers who sell yourselves for that which will canker. Why have ye polluted the holy church of God?" So, I got a question: Who is the holy church of God? Mm-hmm. I mean, Mormon has seen our day. Christ showed him us. He knows exactly who he's talking to, and he's and he's not. He, he didn't say, and Christ has shown me that the Holy Church of God might get polluted. 
He says, why have ye polluted it? Which means that he saw that it has been polluted. The question is, is who did the polluting? And you'll notice that he never said it was the brethren. Mm -hmm. It's not the church doing the polluting. It says, ye teachers who sell yourselves for that which will canker. Things that canker are things that don't hold up over time. Right. Things of eternal Worldly nature yeah. hold up. God's words will hold forever, mm -hmm. past, present, and future. But the words of man, science as an example, have made many hundreds of thousands, even millions of predictions and so forth that have been found later on to be just simply wrong and incorrect. So if we put our faith in science versus in God, mm -hmm. then I think we've got a real, a real problem. And unfortunately, um, are there any teachers that you can think of in the church who are teaching basically the things of man as having more relevance or more validity mm -hmm. or more power or authority than the things coming directly from God? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's your average you know, gospel doctrine teacher. <laughs> so mm -hmm. again, I'm just going to leave this open for, uh, for you to decide as you can consider this thing. He said that the church has been polluted by the teachers who sell themselves, which means they're being paid to teach things that are simply not going to hold up over time. So um, that's that's an interesting one. <laughs> and I'll let you guys uh, figure that out for yourself. But as a final note, um, the, uh, the the Flood Museum, it's easy to find if you get to mm -hmm. Nauvoo. Uh, basically, as you're going down Mulholland Street, which is kind of the main drag mm -hmm. going into, into Nauvoo, uh, if you keep your eyes on the, uh, let's see, that would be the north side. North side, yeah. The north side over there. Right you're going to see a big building up there with a huge dinosaur in front of it. Yeah, big dinosaur in front, big <laughs> rainbow on the building. So, and a rainbow yeah. on the building. And, and, and a ramp with all you, the animals Do you ever get any, up, so. uh, any backlash from the rainbow thing? It's no, we've had a couple people come in who <laughs> they think it might mean something else, but that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, we've, and then they come through and they still it's learn. It's a symbol yeah. that was co-opted by and, another and the thing, We tell people, too, when you come in, after you go through the museum, you're going to learn much more about what the rainbow means. But that information is not a stick to beat somebody over the head with. That's for that's you. Right. That's right. And um, it's not so important, I don't feel, that we go out and be combative with people who are misusing the symbol or the token of the rainbow. But it is very important that when we see it, we remember and that we renew that covenant with the Lord that, every time we see it. And that covenant was basically this in a nutshell? Well, um, we have the advantage of restored <laughs> scripture because they, they, if you ask people, they'll say, oh, that God will never send a flood again. But if you, if actually, if you read the scriptures, in addition to that, he says that he is renewing the covenant that was made with Enoch. What was the covenant made with Enoch? The covenant made with Enoch, if you remember, it's one of the most harrowing parts of scripture to me, because when the Lord starts showing Enoch the events that are going to come in the future, he sees the destruction of everyone. And, that, and the phrase that is used is really touching because he said that he could not be comforted. Because he saw all of this destruction, he yeah. could not be comforted. The what 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 God then did was show him the coming of Christ. That was the only thing that would give him any peace. And he tells him in this covenant that when the city of Enoch returns, he will return with it, and he will dwell there. Mm -hmm. So the covenant of the rainbow is that. Yes, the Lord will never again. It says actually in restored scripture that he will never again destroy the um, all living things. Period. It doesn't even say with flood that he will destroy all living things. But he goes on. To, it, it goes on that he will return, that he will dwell with us. Yeah, that's what we should remember when we see the rainbow. Exactly, and that and that's what the symbolism is about. Now, there's one final thing. Yes, and that is that. Uh, these are things that are pretty direct in the Book of Mormon talking right. about the flood. But there's mm -hmm. but there's one that you that we were, you've told me about just uh, briefly about kind of a more it's a little more indirect and it's maybe not quite as easily seen. But let's go back to Ether for just a minute. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so this is well, it's great because Ether it shows us it's actually three, a testimony. Two. Yeah, Ether two and three. It's it it actually is a great testimony to the Hebrew Jewish origin of these people who wrote. These, these scriptures, because in Ether 2 and 3, you'll remember that when, um, when the brother of Jared is told to build the boats, and he builds the boats, and I can imagine him, he looks in there and he goes, it's dark in there. <laughs> dark in there. And he goes <laughs> on and on. It, it's yeah. really interesting, because he goes uh, on and on about how dark how it's going to be, deal with and we can't unplug the plugs. And, I mean, he's, you can see he's really kind of wound up about this, that, hey, it's really dark in there. Yeah. And, and, he, and, uh, and so he asks, asks God, what do, you, what do you propose we do? 
And God's response is amazing. That, that, that's just, in just, Ether 2.23. can get this. Uh, so Ether 2.23, so yeah. in, the, in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon, you're on page 463. Yeah. So okay. Ether 2.23, he says, what do you propose I do, basically? <laughs> yeah. The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, what will ye that I should do that ye may have light in your vessels? Right. So he just tells him, he says, what do you think I should do? Yeah. And so what the brother of Jared does, and remember, this is a Hebrew boy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He was a Hebrew boy. He had grown up knowing about Noah. Yeah. He knew who Noah, Noah was. They're actually in Genesis 6.16. Um, it, it refers to, this is during the part in Genesis where he's talking about the physical attributes of building the ark. And in 6.16 in particular is when he instructs Noah to place what is translated as the window. Yeah. I mean, sorry, he says, place a window in the... Yes, he says, he says, in the Book of Mormon, it says, for behold, ye cannot have windows. Right, but in Genesis 6, 16, he's telling him to build the ark, and, he's, and yeah. when, we, when we read it in the King James Version, it says window. Right. Well, that is the Hebrew word, sohar. It only is used there. Every other place later on when, throughout, uh, throughout Genesis, when we're talking about um, a window, it's chelon. It's not sohar. So why this time was it translated as window? Well, it's interesting because that term, sohar, can also be translated as light. Oh, wow. So to place a light. And then when you read it that way, read Genesis 6, 16 again, with the idea that what he's saying is not window but light, then you'll see that when he tells him to place it a cubit from, from the you realize what he's telling him is where to hang this light. The Jewish tradition is that when Noah went into the ark, it was going to be dark. Because, of course, with the storm raging around him, he can't have the windows open. Yeah. And um, he would, again, need light. And so what God did was he took a great garnet stone and he touched the stone. Uh-huh. And the stone then growed brightly in the, in the night and dimly in the day. So then, and he tells, and in the Jewish tradition, it says, then the animals would know what time it was. And Noah would know what time it was outside the ark in all of this turmoil. So when the brother Jared now, hearing, having heard this story, is a good Hebrew boy, yeah. and God says, well, what do you propose I do? What's he do? Runs up the hill, forges some stones, comes back and says, if you'll touch them, they'll glow. How did he know that? Because it worked for Noah. So, <laughs> so it's great to me as I read it, I think, there's these echoes of this great patriarch, Noah, yeah. all the way down to the brother of Jared when he's trying to provide light in the Jaredite boats. You bet. So, you bet. Yeah. Well, I just want to, uh, to to thank you, Robert, for coming and, uh, and sharing to be uh, here. some of your, uh, I know this is just a tiny little <laughs> oh, piece. Fun. If you'd like to know more about this, you can actually go to our, our uh, streaming site. We have uh-huh. Book of Mormon Evidence Streaming and so forth. And he's spoken at you know, some of the different uh, conferences and things like that. Uh, you can also get a copy of the, uh, yep, the, the book here. It's called The Token of the Bow. Uh, which is available on our website and mm-hmm. available also at the museum. If you go right. out there, you can get maybe a signed copy. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also have this other book, and you didn't really say too much about that yeah. one, but this is the... Uh, That's the Flood of Hope. It's the similar book to The Token of the Bow there we go. that for your, for your non-member friends um, who want to still receive this validation, this testimony of the truthfulness of the events described in, in Scripture and the truthfulness of this event that so happened to the whole world. For, so this is written for any Bible-believing... Okay. person out there so it's and a lot of hope the very, the very top of it says it's so, okay to believe right <laughs> yep love that great all right um okay so i want you to do uh, thanks again and uh, join yeah. us next time for additional insights and uh, supplemental information on the come follow me program we are uh, we are having lots of exciting uh people who have come and and, and are still coming on to, on to do uh, these podcasts so uh, join us again next week, and we will see you then. Okay. <laughs> we would like to share some clips from the flood experience at the Flood Museum. We hope it brings you peace and hope. The world faces a new flood today, not of water, but of fear and isolation. The solution today is the same as it was for Noah. When the flood came, it was not simply rain, but the fountains of the deep opened up. Scientists today have been surprised to find crystals with water trapped in them, buried deep beneath the surface, hundreds of miles below the surface. Some water trapped in these crystals even survives the journey through a volcano. We now know that great quantities of water lay below us, just as the Bible says. In fact, oceans of water. 
When the surface of the earth fractured, these great fountains opened up and great columns of water were forced out as steam that would condense as rain as well as geysers shooting great streams of water into the air. Those people located in the middle of this great continent, such as Noah and many others, first experienced the rain and the earthquakes. But soon the waves began to flood over them, great tsunamis of water, bringing with them the animals captured along the way. These waters lifted God's ark. Noah, his family, and all the living things aboard the ark were safe, but the journey was a difficult one. God's design of the ark made it the perfect vessel to weather this storm. Noah and his family were protected. They placed their trust in God as the waters rose higher and higher, tossing the ark to and fro. In the midst of the storm, they trusted and they prayed. You call me out upon the Noah and his family moved into their new world, God was never far from their minds. They often looked to the massive ark that had redeemed them from the flood. It was a constant reminder. They used the wood it contained to build their homes. They continued to be protected and sheltered by God's ark for generations. As their families grew and they spread over the new landscape, New generations were unable to see the remains of the ark or the homes they built with its wood. But there was still a reminder. Each time the storms came, there was a little rush of concern. They remembered the flood that had come years ago, 
But there, as the storm passed, was the reminder, the promise, the rainbow. As they looked to the bow, they remembered. God had saved them. God would save them. Noah was carried through the storm in the shelter and safety of God's ark. His children would be carried through the storms that would follow with another ark, his son. The rainbow would be a reminder, a covenant God made with perpetual generations, that safety is found within the shelter of God's love. It was a miracle, and everyone that came after Noah inherited this miracle. The same accounts that confirm the miracle of the flood and God's deliverance also witness of the miracle of the resurrection of God's Son and the salvation it promises for each descendant of Adam, of Noah, and of all the families to come. It is your inheritance, the promise of the miracle. You can find the new virtual expo at bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com. We advertise 60 new videos, but actually almost double that amount. So you'll have plenty of inspiration to carry you through the fall and into the holiday season. Don't miss out on more than 110 new videos now in our library. Special guest speakers are Glenn Beck. David Barton and Tim Ballard. You'll have access for three whole months as well as receiving two bonuses that will offset your complete subscription cost. The first is The Destruction of Christ's Death, which is a two-hour streaming video by Rod Meldrum, which is a $20 value, as well as his new 40-page ebook called Prophecies and Promises. What did Joseph know? That's a $15 value. We're excited for you to join us.